himself. But he said, but when, when he begins to talk about the disciple he loved, he called everybody else by name, but he never mentioned his name. But one of them, the disciple he loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. That meant they must have been talking in a low kind of, of conversation. So Simon Peter nodded to him and asked, and said, Ask who it is he means. And that disciple, as he reclined, leaned back close to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, It's the man to whom I give this piece of bread whom I, which I've dipped in, in the dish. And this was that next sign. If he was in the place on the left, that was the place of honor to sit. If it were, we don't have that recorded. That's just because the dialogue took place between Jesus and John and between Jesus and Judas, we just gather kind of the thought that that's where he was sitting in the place of honor. The next thing, the, the greatest sign of friendship if you were eating with somebody was to dip uh, the bread into the sop. And this, it was called sop. And you dipped it in there and you gave it to the friend. And it was to, to extend to them the greatest gesture of friendship. Do you remember in Ruth, when we were studying in Ruth, when uh, Boaz was eating and he, he saw Ruth and fell in love with her at first sight and he called Ruth over there and he said, sop, take the bread and sop. He was saying to her then, I want to be your friend. I'm extending you a special kind of love, a special kind of courtesy. And so that makes this even worse. That makes it even worse because Jesus went to that length. And he took the bread and he dipped it in the sop and he said, the one who takes this from me with this act of friendship I'm extending toward them, even that one will take it from me and will do a dastardly thing like go out and betray me to the enemy. Now, how could he have done that? How could he have done that? You know, wouldn't that have been enough to have melted you right there if Jesus, with all those twelve sitting around, if he had taken the bread and said, listen, I want to extend this special act of friendship toward you, Judas. I believe if I had intended to do it, wouldn't you think you would have thought a long time before you went out and went on and did it, that would have been enough to change your mind right there. But it didn't for Judas. He was uh, a picture of a saint, it seemed like, with the heart of a devil. Yeah, the heart of the devil at that point. And as Judas received it, when he received it, reached out and received that from Jesus and denied that last appeal of love, and he took that bread from him, he sealed his own fate at that point. He did it to himself. He did it to himself. All he would have had to have done at that point was to have said, No, I'm not your friend at this point. I won't take this bread. And, I, and fallen before him on his face and said, Forgive me for all the thoughts that I've had about betraying. He could have done that at that point. But he didn't. And when he took it, this was his last, this was according to the, that lesson we've had over and over, where you go for so long till your heart is hardened, you deny him and deny him and de deny him and deny his grace and deny his love until you come to a place where you're so hard inside you can't respond to his love anymore. And this was the point this happened to Judas because it said Satan entered him. Satan entered him. Up until this point, we have no record saying Satan dwelled in Judas. He was not Satan on earth incarnate in the flesh all through the, that period of time that he was with Jesus. Satan entered into him at this point. This last gesture of friendship was denied. And turn to Psalm 55, and let's look at the prophecy there. Psalm 55, 12 through 15. And the psalmist says, It was no enemy that taunted me, or I should have avoided him. If it had been an enemy, if it had been somebody outside the camp, that wouldn't have been so bad. No adversary that treated me with scorn, or I should have kept him out of the way. You look for something for somebody uh, who is not a friend and not a fellow Christian. It was you, a man of my own sort, my comrade, my own dear friend, with whom I kept pleasant company in the house of God. 
prophecy telling that there would be one among Jesus' friends who would deny him, who would turn away from him, even one he ate with. So Jesus said at this point, Jesus knew when it was too late for uh, Judas. He knew when Satan entered him, and he said, Do quickly what you have to do. This is it. This is the time. The hour that he's going to be glorified is upon him now. Do quickly. And he knows he's going out at this point to take those pieces of silver and betray him. And you know the sheer cruelty of disloyalty to Judas is that he ate that bread. I think that's the worst part maybe of all and denied the sign of friendship that he had given him. But more than that, let's go on to the rest of it. No one at the table understood what he meant by this. There was not one person there who understood what Jesus meant when he said, uh, go and do what you have to do quickly. And John even expands on it a little bit. He said, some suppose that as Judas was in charge of the common purse, that little group of disciples, Judas was the treasurer, didn't have much money, but what money he had, Judas took care of. And, and Jesus, they thought, the disciples thought, he was, Jesus was telling Judas to go out and buy what was needed for the festival that was going to last for a week. And they would need more supplies, more provisions for the festival. They thought maybe he told them, take the money, go do quickly, go buy whatever supplies we need. Or then again, some of them thought that maybe he was telling them to go give a gift to the poor. And what they would do then was to take, at a time, especially the Feast of Passover, they wanted every Jew, everybody there, to be able to have the sacrifice they needed. Even the poor people would give two doves. And they wanted them to have that, and they wanted them to have something to, to um, celebrate the feast. They'd have to give them something maybe for the unleavened bread, whatever they would need uh, as far as provisions for the week. Any money whatsoever, even the ones who had as little money as Jesus and his disciples, would share with the poor. So see, they assumed, and this is where we make a lot of our mistakes, you always assume what somebody means by something. And they assumed that when Jesus told them this, that they, he meant for them to go one, do one of these two things, which was the common thing to do. Don't you know that if they had thought for a minute, if they had seen through the mask that Judas was wearing, that they would have killed him before they let him go out and betray him that night, go to the soldiers and take that money for his life? They'd have killed him. They didn't have enough love in them at that point to keep from doing something terrible to him. So they had no idea that this actor, this hypocrite, this saintly behavioured person, or this person who was so hardened he turned against Jesus, they had no idea that he was going to go out and betray him. Jesus did. And Jesus said, go do it quickly. Get it done. The time has come. So... Um, Coming on, Jesus was telling him to buy for the festival to give a gift to the poor. As soon as Judas had received the bread, he went out. And something very significant follows that. It was night. It was dark. What did you, your translation have? It was dark. It was night. One or the other. It's verse 30. Judas went away. The devil had entered him. He went away to, do, uh, to be the one who betrayed Jesus. And it says it was night. And everybody knows it was night. And so there must be a spiritual significance behind putting that in. It was night. There's nothing any darker. There's nothing any darker than when a person walks away from Jesus. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And you turn away from the light and you walk in darkness. And he said this over and over and <laughs> over again. This was his teaching. I am the light. If you walk in the light, you'll have light no matter where you are. I was telling Leela on the way over here that I would rather be physically blind <laughs> and have spiritual light than a person who has physical sight and walks in darkness without the light of the world. 
and I was sharing with her that I don't even know why I did it, but I wrote a poem one time years ago, probably back when I was first a Christian. And the point of it, and I, I wish I had brought a copy, but all I remembered was maybe the first time the blind man said, I'd rather be blind than like a, a man who's able to see. It hides from the beauty all around saying, look what the world's done to me. That was the gist of that poem. And apparently, I had been affected by, by somebody at that time. Somebody had made such an impression on me who had everything, physically speaking, and just sat in a puddle of self-pity crying all the time about what was wrong with them, what was wrong in their life. Nothing went right. And we need to look around sometimes and realize what we have and what we have to be thankful for. We need to get on our knees and realize that there are things worse than not having physical sight. Leela walks in more light than many even professing Christians. So that's what he's saying here. It was night. It was dark for Judas. It had never been darker for him because now there was no light. The devil had entered and completely controlled him at that point. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And all through John's Gospel, we've seen him say one time after the other, oh, It's not my time. My time has not yet come. It's not time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He kept saying this. And every time he spoke of the Son of Man himself being glorified, he spoke of the cross. So he said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. The cross is at hand. And in him, God is glorified. Here's fourfold, fourfold glory. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself him in himself and he will glorify him now god is the son is glorified god is glorified in the work of the cross and what the son did on the cross that'll bring, bring glory to god the father it'll bring glory to god the son it'll be glo bring glory to the creation of god everything is glorified and what happened on the cross what was going to happen on the cross the next day so he said, all this glory will come in something as horrible as the cross. Now, that's kind of difficult for us, for us to understand because we, we know that that was the most ignominious type of, of death. It was the cruelest thing you could do to anybody to hang them on the cross. It was the thing you did to the person who was the least nobody. You weren't supposed to hang a Roman. Say. You wouldn't do that to somebody of any prestige. So it seems to me rather strange that God would keep talking about how this was glorifying, how this was the time he was going to be glorified in this cross experience, this horrible, horrible death of, an, of a person who was supposed to be a nobody. And they thought Jesus was a nobody, but he was the Son of God. And the glory came in the cross because there was where God showed his love in a way like we have never seen it demonstrated before. And it's still in effect today. That same experience, that cross still lives, see. It's still there. It still exists today. And people today have to come to the cross in order to have to receive the Son of God to themselves. And when they receive the Son of God, each person who comes to the cross and receives the Son and the, the redemption for their sin through that act, that atoning act on the cross, every time somebody comes, God is glorified. The Son is glorified. The person is glorified. You see, the glory still goes on. There's never been a time in history where there was so much glory brought into existence as was on that day when he was crucified on that cross. It was when God's blood was shed. See, it was pure blood. It was shed. It covered the cross. It covered the sins of, of all men, past, present, and future. Everybody's sins. I was talking to somebody just um, the other day, and they were saying um, they could not receive, they, they believed they were a Christian, but they could not uh, forgive, believe that God would forgive them for something they had done several years ago. Well, many years ago. 
And they said, it was such a horrible thing, God could never forgive me for this. Well, it's, it's impossible to read pages of Scripture and what he's included here and not know that provision for the worst sin in the whole world was taken care of on that cross. But even though it, it happened and it's truth and, and his blood was so pure and able to cleanse everybody's sins, we have to receive that forgiveness for ourselves. We have to believe it. We have to trust it. If we keep on carrying the weight of guilt around because of something we did back somewhere, we have never been freed. We've never been, been freed and we've really called God a liar. And we've really said that that blood is not clean enough and strong enough and powerful enough to cleanse us and forgive in the way he said he would forgive. That doesn't make any less so. If he said it, it's true. And if you've received him into yourself, this happened before she was a Christian. Now, that's clear. It just says so clearly. It says uh, we are new creations in Christ. All things are passed away. All things have become new. We have a new beginning. And as many things that I did that were disappointments and were just a mess before Christ, every single one of those things is washed in the blood, and as far as east is from west and as deep as the deepest sea is, they're gone. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous for me to sit around worrying about how I must have made my husband very miserable because I was never happy? Wouldn't it be ridiculous if I sat around and wallowed in that? Day after day after day. I was not the mother to my child for nine years. I should, wouldn't it be ridiculous? You know, to think that I didn't give my child the spiritual leadership she needed as a mother during those first formative nine years. I, I'm not about to do that. You see, that's washed away. I had a new beginning. And I have enough to concentrate on what I do wrong today. What I do that displeases God today. And I have enough confronting me, keeping those things confessed up to date today for that daily foot washing. You see, I get enough soil on my feet in a daily walk to worry about what happened back that's already been forgotten. It's not about to do that. And don't you either. If you're hanging on to any guilt and you've come to the cross, you trust that blood to be just as pure and just as powerful as he says it is. And that's gone. Let it go. Have a new beginning because that's what he wants for us. All right, so the fourfold glory he has there. My children, for a little while I'm with you, a little bit longer. I'm with you in the flesh. Then you will look for me. And as I've told the Jews, I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot go. Jesus had to walk this road alone. You know, nobody could get on the cross with that experience with him. Only the Son of God could experience that. And then nobody, and nobody could be resurrected with him at that point. And nobody could ascend back to the Father Days later, nobody could walk with him through this experience that he was going through. Now, I want you to remember that when he says this, you have Peter is. He, he hears what he wants to hear and doesn't hear what he wants to hear. That sounds like most of us, right? We hear what we want to hear and we cancel out what we don't want to hear. Or if we hear something we don't like, we hang on that. And we don't go any further. We don't listen to the rest of it. Don't we do that? Once we hear something we don't like, or something we don't want to hear, we'll stay right there. We'll forget. You'll just not hear what anybody says from then on. And so he says, this is what Peter did at this point. Jesus inserts something here, and he gives a teaching that he's going to even come over in the 15th chapter and expound on again. He says, I give you a new commandment. And Peter didn't hear this commandment, as we'll see coming up a little bit after it. But let's take the commandment, then, then see. 
I give you a new commandment. There are 11 commandments. There are the 10 we know, and we, we try to live by the 10 we can recite, the 10 that we believe to be the ones God gave still to be the, prince, the, the way to live the life, the Christian life, the life that pleases him. All right, but he says, I give you a new commandment, number 11. I tell you now, um, love one another as I have loved you. So you're to love one another. Love one another as I've loved you. How did he love the disciples? How did he love the disciples? Because that's the way he expects us to love one another. And let's look, because he wouldn't have added that if he hadn't meant it. Love one another as I've loved you. And this is a commandment he gives us. He doesn't give us our little freedom to love whom we want to love. He expects of us, commands us, to love one another. All of us are to love each other. We have no freedom to call somebody out and say, I don't love you. See, that's flesh. That's flesh. Flesh wouldn't love two people, I don't guess. I guess in our flesh, we'd have a hard time finding anybody we could really say we truly loved, right? Or do you have this problem? In the flesh. But a strange thing happens when the Spirit of God comes to live in you. There's a love. A, a weird, strange kind of thing that causes you want to want to reach out in love to people you never thought you would reach out in love to. Um, every time I come to that point, I think about, you know, you look for, you go back in your own experience, you look for manifestations, things that, that happened that were tremendous changes. And I think one of the funniest things that Laddie still tells everybody is that, that he knew that I was born again when I started to love children. <laughs> that, if you don't, you would have had to know me before. But I would not hold your baby. I mean, if you had stuck your baby at me to hold, I would have been appalled. I would have just been appalled. And I'm, I'm just being honest. I had no, I didn't like any of my children's friends. I didn't want them coming around. I didn't want to be bothered with you. Don't send, nobody could send their kids over to my house. Because I wasn't about, I didn't have the time of day to do anything but sit and feel sorry for myself. So I didn't love because I was so caught up in me, myself, and I. There was no love for anybody except my husband and my child. Well, my family back over somewhere. Like, didn't like all of them. <laughs> but, but some of them I did. But you know what? The strangest thing happened, and I really I feel like I need to share this because I think this is, this is the sort of thing we look for that are evidences, real evidences, and, and that make you know there's a power within that's caused something different to happen in your life. The strangest thing happened after Jesus came in. There was a, a thing about children. I embraced children. I wanted to fool with other people's children. I'd never done that in my whole life. And Laddie keeps saying, if I didn't have anything else to go on to know you were born again, it's the way you feel about children now. So these are things, and that's true in your own life. I'm sure you can look at things like this and see that there's a power within you that you didn't have before. And you don't do that. I don't. My fleshly nature is still there, and I have anybody, see. But God's nature is pure love. And whatever love there is in me, it's because of Him. It's because of Him. It's nothing special about a person. It's special about the person who lives within that person. And so let's look at how Jesus loved his disciples. Four things. I broke it down into four things. This was his farewell command. He said, love them as I've loved you. He loved them selflessly. Selflessly. 
He never thought about himself. Not one time do we have recorded where Jesus cared about himself more than he cared about others. So he loved them selflessly, never asking, what will you do? For, what will your love do for me? You know, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm not going to do for you anymore because of your response. You haven't responded like you should have to me. He loved them sacrificially. There was no limit to which he would go. Absolutely no limit to his love. There was nothing too much they could ever ask of Jesus. Nothing too much they could ever ask of him. He loved them so sacrificially, there was never any demand that was too great to put upon him. Whatever the need was, however it, it caused him to have to expend his energies or expend himself or to, to deny himself, that's how he loved his disciples sacrificially. He loved them understandingly. And I want us to get this one. The selfless is one thing. The sacrificial is another thing. But in the hardest thing in the world, understand? To understand each other? You know, we want everybody to act and react like we think they ought to act and react. And we never give a minute's thought to the fact that we have not walked in that person's shoes for, for any length of time whatsoever. We don't know how they were raised. We don't know what they've gone through, what hardships they've had, what traumatic experiences they have. We never think about anything like that. We just don't understand when somebody doesn't do everything like we think they ought to do. And we can take husbands and wives. We can take parent and child. We can take brother and sister in Christ. And let me analyze, ask yourself, how much do you really understand and try to understand another person and what they do and what they don't do? Okay, he had lived, he loved these people for better or for worse. And the, the thing that I love about Jesus is he saw through them to what they could become in his power, in his strength. Peter was absolute an abom uh, absolutely an abomination. He was always causing nothing but trouble, always doing the wrong thing. Jesus saw him to be a rock. He saw in and through, when, when the Spirit of God came into his life on that day at Pentecost, Jesus saw what Peter could become, a solid rock, so grounded in Christ. One day out here that he felt like he was worth the investment of time and energy. When he saw Matthew at the tax collector's table, there was nothing desirable about Mac, uh, Matthew, absolutely nothing desirable about him. And yet Jesus saw through that out here where the Spirit of God came upon him and Matthew would be used to take that pen he had been recording, taxes, and he would take that pen and record all these teachings of Jesus. He'd be a special disciple. So Jesus was able to look through somebody and say, I don't care how bad you are, I don't care how incorrigible you are, I don't care how rude or crude you are. Back there somewhere, there's a, something beautiful that can be made out of your life when Jesus comes into it. So he saw that. Now, why don't we look at people like that? If we see somebody who just turns us off completely, why don't we put our magnifying glass on what they can be in Jesus? You know, take our magnifying glass, take it off their faults. Take it off their faults. We take magnifying glasses and put them on faults. We do, especially if something bugs us. You know, we'll put it on that fault. And what we should do is look for something good and take your magnifying glass and put it there. And leave it there and talk about the good in a person. Understand that there are many things that brought the person to where they are and love them in spite of and not because of. We've got a lot to learn there. Um, there was a song. Pat, do you remember the words of that song that Doug sang at the church we went to Sunday afternoon? That new song he's learned all the way through it, it talked about one after the other person who had turned on him or done something to him, and the end of it would always be, but he still loves you. But he still loves you. It's a new song. It's beautiful. It will just turn you inside out. But no matter what you do to him, Jesus still loves you. 
Now he said, love each other as I've loved you. <laughs> do we just keep on loving somebody no matter what they do to us? That's a command. It's not something we can take or leave. Okay, the fourth thing, forgivingly. He loved them selflessly. He loved them sacrificially. He loved them understandingly. And he loved them forgivingly. Peter denied him. All the disciples fled in his hour of need. They slept when he said, stay awake. Get prepared for what's about to come. They didn't understand him. All of these things, and yet he always forgave everything. He was the most forgiving example that we have. No matter what anybody did to him, he was able to forgive them. He was able to reach out in love and forgive them and make them know of, the, of his forgiveness. See, he didn't just forgive them and not ever let them know about it. He let them know he didn't hold it against them. So I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Have you ever had a, um, the Lord begin to work in a, a special kind of way with you on something that you just didn't <coughs> like at all? Well, I know in, in all the things, and there have been a million and still are a million places that he must get so discouraged with me. I know that I must be the worst person in the world to just learn lessons, learn lessons. But one of the first ones he started teaching was this 1 Corinthians 13, and I was so aggravated. After a while, everywhere I turned, I came upon this passage of Scripture, and that's no accident. That's no accident. I could pick up the newspaper, and all of a sudden, it'd have 1 Corinthians 13 in it. And finally, it didn't take but about a month or something. <laughs> it took quite some time. Finally, I said, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? I don't love like you've laid out for me to love. All right, listen to what he says. He says, let's just take the 4th through 7th verses. Love is patient. This is God's love. This is agape love. And he said, love one another. That love is agape. Here it is, spelled out in a nutshell. So listen to it. Let's measure ourselves by God's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love envies no one. Love is never boastful, not conceited, not rude, never selfish, not quick to take offense, Love keeps no score of wrongs, does not gloat over other men's sins, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There's no limit to its faith, its hope, its endurance. And he says all the way through 1 Corinthians 13, though you have everything in the world and you don't have this, you have nothing. Though you have every gift and every ability and all the talent in the world and you have every position though you have all of these things and you don't have this kind of love you have nothing now put Christ in that place Christ is patient Christ is kind Christ envied no one Christ was never boastful nor conceited nor rude never selfish never quick to take offense Christ kept no score of wrongs he never gloated over other men's sins, but delighted in the truth. He was the truth. There was nothing that love in, that Christ could not face. There was no limit to his faith, to his hope, to his endurance. All right, now he said, love as I loved. Is that what he said? It was a commandment. This I commend you. Love as I've loved. Now how are we going to do it? That's a, that's a high order. It's a big, tall order. And yet, it's a commandment. 
And he said, you're happy when you keep my commandments. So if we don't keep that one, that's part of our reason for not being any happier than we are. Realize, like Mike's sermon last night, stop trying and start trusting. Come to a place where we realize that we cannot love like this. You can't and I can't. That's not our natural nature's kind of love. But as much as we will allow, and I'll say this every week, I'll say it every week until the last breath I take. I'll probably still, that'll probably be my last thing I'll say. As much as we will allow Christ to fill and control our lives, this will be evident in our lives. As much as we've allowed him to fill and control our lives daily, this will be evidenced in our lives. And he always said, this is the way you'll know they're my disciples. This is the way you'll know they're mine, by how they love one another. How they love one another. Okay, now, after he tells this, after he goes through this, and it's so important that he get, look, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> it's been a while now since, since he said he was going where they couldn't go. I love him. I love it. He's so human. <laughs> he is so human. He said, Lord, where are you going? He forgot everything in between and said, really didn't know about love. And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. See, he's patient. Love is patient. What would we have done? Peter, why don't you get yourself straightened up and start listening? I told you that one time. You ever hollered at anybody because they didn't hear you when you said something? Your husband, <laughs> your husband tune you out every now and then? <laughs> mine has a marvelous ability just to tune me out. Anybody whose mouth runs like mine, he says it's survival. But every now and then I know he's going to miss a good gem. I just know I'm going to say something really worth listening to and he's going to have me tuned out. <laughs> I tell him that every now and then. But anyway, I don't like that to be listened to, do you? And so Peter, Jesus was so patient. He says again, Lord, where, I'm, um, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but one day you will. You remember the 21st, I'd, I've got to thinking about that, and I'd always heard tradition say that, that Peter was crucified. Uh, when they crucified him, tradition says that Peter said, I cannot be crucified as my Lord turned me upside down, nailed me to the cross upside down. Turn to John 21, 18, 19. Season further, I tell you this in very truth. When you were young, you fastened your belt about you and walked where you chose. But when you are old, you will stretch out your arms. He's talking to Peter. You will stretch out your arms and a stranger will bind you fast and carry you where you have no wish to go. He said this to indicate the manner of death by which Peter was to glorify God. See, Peter, God was glorified even in the death of Peter. The one who right at this point looked like it was just hopeless, he tells us at the end of John's gospel that there was going to be a day after Peter had let go of his life and God had filled it in such a tremendous way and used him in such a marvelous manner. He had come to the place where he even shared with us last, in last week's scripture, I brought out the fact that he had even learned the lesson of humility. He said, all of us must gird ourselves about with humility. This is the badge we should wear, each one of us. And then this account, John goes back and he says, even then, Peter was going to, have to die the same kind of death, and God would be glorified then as well. But, but he says, you don't know, but one day you will. And maybe he was saying that, saying that one day he would understand what he was talking about, even in the manner of death. And Peter said, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I'll lay down my life. You remember we just had in the first part of this chapter where he said, the Lord said, let me wash your feet. And he said, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. Never. 
Never, if I lived a million years, I would never let you wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have fellowship with me. He says, okay, wash my whole body. <laughs> so I had my feet, my hands, my arms, everything. He, he could change in a minute. Never saw anything like him. But anyway, here, he says, Lord, why can't I? He didn't understand it all. And at that minute, he, he meant that. At that precise moment, he meant that there's not anywhere in the world I wouldn't follow you. And that was when he was with Jesus. Remember this. He was in the presence of Jesus when he said this. Jesus was right there. He was in the presence of, of Jesus that day. He, he didn't fall out on the Mount of Transfiguration. There, that day that he jumped out of the boat, you know, we go walk on the sea. Jesus was there. He denied him when Jesus wasn't right with him in the flesh. See, he was by himself, and it was a, a maiden, just a, ma a woman who said to him, you know, aren't you one of his? And he said, I never knew. Even at the point of getting so angry, he cursed and said, I never knew. Well, listen to this. Lord, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. He didn't know what he was talking about. When he was left in his own strength, he didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus answered, will you indeed lay down your life for me? I tell you, verily before the, the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. So Jesus knew Peter in all his weakness. And he knew Peter in all his love. He knew he loved him. He knew how weak he was. He knew not only what Peter was, but what he could be when he finally got right, you know, when he finally surrendered totally. He knew all of these things about, about Peter, but he knew at this point that right then Peter was not strong enough, not strong enough to even stand up to a woman when the woman asked him, and he thought he was endangered. He wasn't with it. But there's, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson. We can do so much when we're filled with the Spirit. We can do so much when Jesus is, is so much in control of our lives, but without him, our flesh is no weaker than... It's just like weak water. I mean, it's nothing. Not a one of us. Not, a one, not one of you. Surely not me. Not a one of us is able to stand up against anything except for the power that's in us that Jesus gives us. So that's what happened with Peter. It wasn't he didn't love him. It wasn't that he didn't think that's what he would do. It was just that when he was by himself in the flesh, he was as weak as water. He couldn't stand up. But that's, that's true for us too. So let's remember that. That should encourage us every day to get up and to literally, literally be conscious of the need for that foot washing, the confession of sin each day for that daily walk with him the walk that keeps us so close to him. And you know and I know when I get away, don't you? Don't you know when we start walking on our own? Don't you know when we start getting outside the will of God? Sure you do, and I do too. But we should, we should want it so much that it should cause us to be so anguished and so in turmoil that we can't wait to get back. Surrender again. It's a process. It's a daily process. You cannot get enough at conversion to last you till you go to be with him. You can't. It's a daily renewing, a daily cleansing process that has to take place in order to keep us close to him. We all fail. Every single one of us is absolutely nothing in our own strength. Remember that. Remember that. We are no more than the, the um, amount of Christ we let released in our life each day. That's all we are. No more, no less.